A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I have eyelash extensions again. Hi, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, bi-con, bisexual icon, wink, and I'm the best dad ever. You're the best dad ever? Yeah, that's what my mug says. Oh, if your mug says it, it's got to be true. That's a rule. Absolutely. Absolutely, (laughs) it's true. I love your eyelash extensions. They look beautiful. Thank you. I just wish they weren't so expensive. (laughs) It's so wild because what are they doing? You're sitting there and they're just delicately placing eyelashes on you with glue. Yeah, like one, like for every eyelash, they put a fake lash on. And for some lashes, they put three fake lashes per real eyelash. I have a mixed set, a hybrid set. This is funny because we are talking about drag later in this episode and like, this is drag. Yeah. (laughs) I got them for my wedding, but I'm going to try to at least keep them through my honeymoon and then I'll have to look at my finances (laughs) and see if I can keep it going. I got in the car. John picked me up after I get in the car and he was like, all right, we got to figure out how to keep paying for this. (laughs) That's so sweet. (laughs) He loves them so much. That's so sweet. Aww. Because, like, there's that whole stereotype that men never notice anything. Yeah, and then, like, you know. (laughs) Aww. Yeah. I don't think that that's true. Because I remember I had, like, my ex. I, well, my ex didn't remember. One time I straightened my hair after I had worn it curly basically for like months. And my ex did not realize at all that I had done that. And then was like, no, this is, I was, we made a TikTok about it where someone was like, they were like, no, it looks the exact same. And then I just made a TikTok of being like, this is my hair usually. This is my hair now. And everyone was like, no, that's completely different. (laughs) He doesn't notice if I cut my bangs. Even though, like, to me, that looks so different when my bangs are short versus long. But I don't think he really notices when I do that. You guys should break up. Well. <laughs> well, I was going to say also, like, if you, we want to promote our TikToks, my TikTok is Dabby Gun still for uh, because I don't know how to change it without losing my verified check. I can't get a verified check. I tried and they said no. OK, well, yours is Allison Raskin, baby. Yeah, but I'm still upset about that. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe I should just change it. And like, if you're existing without a verified check, surely I can. But how well am I existing is the question. (laughs) (laughs) This is just between us, a variety show filled with heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. I'm so excited because we have one of my very good friends, Alyssa Goodman, on the show talking about the history of drag. Alyssa and I have known each other since we were children, since we were teens, And uh, we've stayed friends over the years. And when we both lived in New York, we were really good friends. She still lives there. And I remember her being very sad when I said I was moving to L.A. And like, I think I pitched it as like, I might, I don't know, I might move to L.A. And I remember her just being like, like deeply, like I was like, oh, this isn't going well. (laughs) 
<laughs> but yeah, we um, we've known each other since we were really young and we were both very ambitious writers. And she's like a great freelancer who has just like taught me a lot about being on top of my shit while freelancing. So I'm very excited. This is her first book. And later, we're going to be talking all about glimmers, which is basically the opposite of a trigger uh, and a really cool term. I just learned about it and I'm excited to share. Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting. Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Alyssa Max Goodman, a New York-based writer and photographer specializing in nonfiction writing and documentary photography. Her first book, Glitter and Concrete, A Cultural History of Drag in New York City, is out now. Also, we have known each other since we were 15. Hello, Alyssa. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Gabe. How are you? How are you, Allison? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I was wondering if you were going to reveal the backstory, Gabe, or make it seem like we were all just strangers. Yeah, extremely <laughs> professional. No, Alyssa and I met. <laughs> Alyssa and I are both from the same hometown. And we met when we were 15 at like a journalism internship for children. <laughs> <laughs> we wrote for the local newspaper. Yeah, we wrote for the local <laughs> newspaper, like for like a was teen. It was like teen time or something. Next generation. Next generation. That's what it was called. <laughs> I wish it had been called teen time, though. Right. I think there was another section of the, the newspaper that was called that. So teen I'm time. not sure there may. <laughs> oh, yeah. And um, and we both, I think, took it extremely seriously and, and hence becoming friends. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, we were not there for a laugh. We were there to build our careers at 15. <laughs> that is a thousand percent accurate. <laughs> um, but this is so exciting because so I've known your writing, obviously, for God, 20 years. <laughs> and um, this is your first book. And I know the journey of like how much you've invested <laughs> in this book. Um, yeah. And so I wanted to ask, so it's it's a history of drag in New York City, which is amazing. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I mean, I know these answers, but let's get into it for the audience. When did you start understanding or, or come into contact with drag? I was seven years old. <laughs> I, well, I'll say seven or eight because um, it was when Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar came out. And you have that tattoo that I have I a tattoo for that. for that movie. Yes. But I saw that movie when I was seven or eight. And I say seven or eight because I saw it on pay-per-view. And I don't know the timeline when it came out on pay-per-view. Oh, my God. Um, but that movie came out in 1995. And to that point, uh, my mother had raised me on 1950s movie musicals. So like bright, technicolor, like swirling dresses. And it was my interest in a lot of those movie musicals. Uh, was largely geared toward costume design. And so Tu Wong Fu entered my stratosphere somehow. And it was, I think, very much a natural progression mm -hmm. of these musicals that I had been watching as a child, even though it wasn't a musical. But I think it was, it was so much more impactful because I don't know if I would have had the words for it right then, but it was happening now. You know, it wasn't happening 40 in years the 50s, yeah. in the past. And there were these beautiful humans in gorgeous gowns and ensembles and they were smart and funny and vivacious and they were my Disney princesses. 
So my interest in drag really starts there. And as I got older, it became an appreciation of this form that is rooted in rebellion and resilience and actively questioning authority, which I've always loved. Or I should say is when I began to learn about those things, those were things that made me love drag even more. So it's been a part of my life for almost 30 years. (laughs) How would you in your book, let's say, if someone's picking it up and they're like, what is this? Which would be they're an alien from another planet. But how do you explain um, what drag is? That's a great question. So in the book, I define it as gender performance. And I leave it pretty broad in that way. But the other part of it that I do talk about in the book is that it's an active choice to be creating this performance. So, you know, like (laughs) as outside of the book, you know, my own understandings or my own relationship to drag is maybe even more liberal, like, you know, to me, and I think probably to a lot of other people, like wrestling is drag, you know, and like existing, (laughs) existing in a gendered body is drag, you know, wrestling is drag though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but you know, like if you're, uh, for example, just to, to, to consider myself, if you are a person who identifies as female, like getting up every day and putting on your clothes and putting on makeup, that's drag. Like I would definitely define this situation as drag right now. But in the book, I define it as specifically active gender performance on or off stage. This is like your passion, which is kind of funny because you're not queer. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, what's strange is that I never realized how unusual it was to be a person so invested in drag as a person who's not queer until maybe like, you know, maybe until I moved to New York or probably after that, because it was just like, oh, (laughs) there would be people who were queer or or who did drag or both who would be like, oh, well, how did you get into drag? And I was like, why Why wouldn't I be into drag? Have you seen drag? Like, do you know <laughs> what was happening? But it's easily one of the defining art forms of my life. Absolutely. It's taught me um, all these different ways to look at the world and to, and you know, and this also comes from my parents, this like active questioning of authority and the ways that we can bend and change and rebel against the ideas that we've been given about anything, but drag in particular, about the ideas about gender that we've been given and whether or not it's a total fallacy, (laughs) you know? (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. Turtles All the Way Down is the acclaimed number one bestseller by John Green, author of The Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. Turtles All the Way Down is now streaming on Max. NPR named the novel a, quote, sometimes heartbreaking, always illuminating glimpse into how it feels to live with mental illness. Aza Holmes never intended to pursue the disappearance of fugitive billionaire Russell Pickett, but there's a $100,000 reward at stake and her best and most fearless friend Daisy is eager to investigate. So together, they navigate the short distance and broad divides that separate them from Pickett's son, Davis. Aza is trying. She's trying to be a good daughter, a good friend, a good student, and maybe even a good detective, while also living with the ever-tightening spiral of her own thoughts. Turtles All the Way Down is a brilliant novel about love, resilience, and the power of lifelong friendship. 
As someone with OCD, it is so wonderful to see OCD represented in an incredible book. I think it is so important that we talk about mental illness, both in our own lives and through narrative. Buy your copy of Turtles All the Way Down in stores today and catch the movie streaming on Max. This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash, hmm, you can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. Just between us. And we're back. Can we dive into the history of it a bit? I mean, when did it really pop up? Has it been around forever? What are some misconceptions? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. And that's a great question. I mean, drag has been a part of culture for thousands of years. And I mean, that's partly rooted in the fact that women weren't allowed on stage for a very long time. And that changes, I think, about in the 1600s, um, 17th century. So up until then... Um, unless there were special cases, like a majority of women's roles were played by men or people who identified as men. I mean, and that dates to the dawn of theater, you know? And so my book chronicles from 1865 to the present. And that's largely because I wanted uh, to to talk about history that was as diverse as possible. Right. And, but yeah, it goes back, it goes back thousands of years. And I think that's one of the interesting things about it is that like when you think about how new art forms have embedded themselves in society and like there's there's always usually like a like a certain amount of time that people need to catch up to it shall we say so like for example like there wasn't a photography department at the Museum of Modern Art until 1940 right Whoa. and then uh photography had come around had developed, if you will, in uh, the <laughs> in the nineteenth century, right? And then the other part of that is film. So we have the advent of film happens at the beginning of the twentieth century ish, give or take a few years, and then by like the nineteen thirties, we get the Hayes Code, which is controlling and censoring a lot of the images that we're seeing on screen, which is eventually abandoned at the end of the sixties. But it's another form that you know, like. It's a, it's a it's a new thing and we have to regulate it, you right. know, and then drag has just sort of gone in and out of those spaces for thousands of years. And like that dates, I mean, one of the examples I can think of is with as as it relates to kabuki and to samurai, like kabuki was originally performed men's roles and women's roles by sex workers. Mm-hmm. And the form became so popular that the popularity of it actually outranked the samurai and the powers that be could not, they were like, no, 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 this is, this can't, the sex workers can't be more popular than the samurai. So now Kabuki is only going to be performed by men. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is like Japanese um, <laughs> drag dance, right? It's a form of like a form of theater 
where they wear certain costumes and yeah, it's a it's a style of theater. I saw it once when I was in Japan at fifteen when I was fifteen. Oh yeah. wow, yeah. I mean, so it's just and like- one of the persons, like one of their little one of their costumes, kept coming undone, and then a person had to keep running onto stage and tying up the little costume. Oh, <laughs> I want that job. Yeah. I want the job of the guy who ties up the costume. <laughs> but like, yeah. but like that's the thing is that I think what we're seeing. Like, so in 1865, it was like, okay, now we're going to do this. And then all of a sudden they're like, wait, we have to ban people from wearing clothes that aren't to their specific gender at birth. And then it's like, wait, never mind. Let's all get a little freaky and have these like gender bendy (laughs) performers who are, you know, like Sylvester and all these kinds of things. And then they're like, wait, never mind. We hate this again. Like, it just like, have you, is that what your, your history has been? It's just, Hey, everyone loves this. Hey, everyone hates this now. Hey, everyone loves this. I mean, pretty much. So let's say like toward the mid to the end of the 19th century, drag is uh, a very popular form of entertainment. And what happens is the way the drag is presented changes Because at least for drag on the variety stage, which is a precursor to vaudeville, what happens is that um, the people who are buying tickets to these shows are generally like middle class men. And what happens in the mid in the mid 19th century um, toward the 1870s is there's an event called the Long Depression. There becomes, you know, economic depression, economic devastation. And the way that men prefer now to interact with drag at that time is to go what they had previously was to have for example if there were female if there were male impersonators people who were called male impersonators at the time but we call drag kings today what they would have is rather what they were before the long depression where they were embodying men right and then after the long depression the vogue changes to embody like a young boy because that person is less threatening. Oh. And so then, you know, you move forward a little bit and you have Julian Eltinge, who becomes one of the most famous entertainers, not just in New York, but in the world. Um, like had his own cold cream, had his own cigar line, had his own magazine, like was the RuPaul certainly of his day. And then as time moves forward, kind of what happens is that in prohibition, everyone develops a taste for the taboo. Mm-hmm. And the taboo starts to include both what's known as pansy performance, which is kind of like like an exaggerated, flamboyant gay man, you know, just like reading the audience for filth and people are like living for it, right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> so for example, one performer was named Gene Mallon, Gene Mallon, and he would perform with drag artists. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of the first time where drag and queerness became the most intertwined that they had been to that point. And when uh, the Vogue for the Verboten fell out around the time of the Depression, and it was a return to a more conservative value, shall we say, drag and pansy performance definitely fell off the map for a long time. And what's funny is that you get a resurrection of it during World War II, actually in during the war. When you have drag as an active part of morale boosting for uh, soldier shows and it's actively featured in like one of the biggest Broadway hits of the time called This is the Army features no women. (laughs) Um, So all of the roles are played by men and there are several numbers in drag 
And then in the in the program, you have all this language around like this is a longstanding dedication to to boosting morale, and it's always been part of us since Roman times, and all this kind of language, like the butching of this language around why it was okay that these soldiers were in drag and that it wasn't like deviant, you know, and that sort of continues this relationship between drag and like deviant behavior continues into the 1950s when there were things like the lavender scare, when there were like on mass firings from the government uh, for people who were found out to be queer. And it becomes also an internalized homophobia of sorts. So even within the queer community, there is anti-drag sentiment. And this is something like if you read about the Stonewall Uprising, you know, of course, it was the people who started it were in drag or they were transgender women of color predominantly. And you, you read these statements from these like white gay men at the time being like, why are you being so tacky? Stop doing that. You know? like uh-huh. Yeah. So it was, it was internalized for a long time. It was not always considered cool. I mean, you know, it's not cool for everyone now, unfortunately, but like it was very much underground for a very long time. And it was like a verboten entertainment um, throughout the 50s and the 60s because there were places that you could go to see it, but it was like to go see it as a novelty, like, oh, why don't we go to that drag show tonight? You know, like that was kind of the vibe. They would have called it probably a female impersonator show. And so after Stonewall, what happens also that's interesting is that there is um, in a large part of the gay male community, like a desire to present very butch, like mm-hmm. the sort of Tom of Finland vibe. And one of the drag queens I spoke to was just like, they didn't want anything to do with us. They were just like, that's not us. Like, we aren't like that. We're buff. We're wearing leather. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And like part of that too became part of, before Stonewall, part of the narrative of the Mattachines was just like, you know, we wish there weren't swishes, but, you know, you should still respect them, but they shouldn't really, you know, that was kind of the even the people who were queer, who were running right. these homophile, as they were called at the time, organizations, like, and into the 80s, I think actually I spoke to Zaldi for the book. And one of the things he said was like, it was looked down on as something that you did. It's like, don't you want to have a career? Like this wasn't a career choice, and now it is. And so the relationship to drag as something that was positive really only started to change around the 90s. Um, and in on mass, you know, right. there's no communities, a monolith, a monolith. I wouldn't want to say, you know, it was this way for everyone. Obviously it can't be given the culture that we're living through now, but those are some of the ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I was just what my friend posted, who is drag queen actually posted a clip of Jack from Will and Grace. And I remember there mm-hmm. was this big thing of this is not to do with drag, but Will was butch and Jack was swishy. And there was like this sure. this backlash of like, well, Sean Hayes does not represent gay people, like very worried about anyone yeah. who sort of was very femme or very I like the word swishy. I'm bringing it back. <laughs> but like, yeah, they were worried about like the respectability of certain gay people and then other gay people or quote or like trans yeah. people. What is that going to make gay people look like? It's interesting. Like now you'll I mean, old Season one of Drag Race, you'll see, you'll hear them talking about, oh, nobody wants to date me. My boyfriend doesn't want me to do drag. My boyfriend doesn't know I'm doing drag versus like now it's like the boyfriend is in the audience wearing the merch, <laughs> like super yeah. into it. So, I mean, it would you say like it went pretty mainstream 
because I think there was like no problem. And then like it must be so surreal now to have been no been aware of this stuff for so long. And then all of a sudden it's like somebody heard about drag and was like, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the really interesting part, right? Is that like, so I would say that at the very least in our adult lifetimes, if you want to call like being 20, being an adult in our adult lifetimes, in the last 15 years, there was not a relationship to drag that we knew of in the way that it's happening now, in the way that this backlash is happening now. And when this all was happening, part of me was like, how is this possible? I thought we were done with this. It's been the last 15 years. And then it's just like, Alyssa, you wrote this book. Like, how could you be so naive? You know, like, how could you can't just forget all of these other things that happened? And it's not that I was forgetting them necessarily, but that I guess I just thought we were through that tunnel, you know, but and maybe that that's not maybe that's probably, as we now know, too optimistic. But I mean, I just was able to give you like a timeline of all the ups and downs throughout culture. And, you know, I would say a 15 year cycle at this point, like is pretty standard, maybe, which is unfortunate, you know, because a drag as this art form that has been around for thousands of years, still hasn't got to the point of like, no, we're going to take away the Hayes Code, or no, we're going to add the department to the Museum of Modern Art or what have you. And as an art form, it should be getting the respect it deserves because doing drag is a multitude of art forms combined together. If you want to hear the rest of this episode, and let me tell you, you do, head over to patreon.com slash justbetweenus. And for $3 a month, you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad-free. You can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod.com or alisonraskinexposed.com. Okay, that's it. Tatala T2. Tatala T2.